Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That famous beginning of Ecclesiastes that we all know from literature and from the King James Bible, but it's wrong. And if you've never heard that it was wrong, you should hear that it's wrong. The translation is incorrect, and it's burned into our minds. And so I do believe every Christian ought to know how that word came about and the result it has had for our Christian conduct in this world. In the 4th century, uh, there was produced this Latin Bible called the Vulgate. And you may have heard of this. This is in the days before printing presses. And so this single Bible lasted a thousand years, if you could imagine it. A millennium. And that Bible in Latin was read in every church. That was the authorized version for the churches in the world, East and West. And in that translation, it's written by, chiefly by Jerome. And you may have heard of St. Jerome. Jerome is a, a brilliant, um, educated man. And when he comes to the book of Ecclesiastes, in his commentary, he recognizes he has a choice at this point as to what to translate the word. And the options, as he looks in the use of the word, are things like cloud, or mist, or vapor, or even sunbeam. You know that idea of a beam of sun running through a room. But he doesn't. He chooses the Latin vanitas. And he says why. It's because this mood, this energy, you may have heard of, of Greek philosophy that's always creeping into the church, that we need to separate from the physical world and ascend to the spiritual The spiritual world is high and good, and the physical world is bad. When I die, I need to go to heaven and leave the earth and my body behind. That is unorthodox. It is untrue and is unscriptural. But that idea is always seeding itself back into Christian culture. It seeds itself into every religion. The the, the despising of our physical humanity, of food, of sex, of physical work, And you think you might be able to hear that in Ecclesiastes, and Jerome decides, I want that term, and he writes about his contempt for the world, and that takes on an energy for over a thousand years. And the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther and and, um, Melanchthon, reject that reading. And for for reasons I can only um, begin to understand so far, the King James Version decided to pick up vanitas and translate vanity of vanities. And every translator who comes upon that now says this is not the right one, but we will never get it out of the imagination of the Western mind. And it's led us to all kinds of irresponsibility with nature, in the environment, with our lives, with our physical bodies, because it's all just going to be burned up anyhow. So today we need to correct that and get behind what's actually going on in the mind of this writer, Kohelet or Um, the preacher, maybe he's called the gatherer. And his meaning here is not vanity. It's much closer to something like sunbeam or mist. The best illustration that comes to mind for me uh, goes back um, almost three decades now. Part of my training, um, I tell this story occasionally, I had to do free fault parachuting. So I had to jump out of airplanes and fall at 180 miles an hour and, and then pull your chute. 
which is every bit as scary as it sounds. If it doesn't, um, then um, you're insane. It's a crazy thing to do, <laughs> to be in an airplane. And so the, um, there's a suspense to it that builds up. We were in training, and you go through quite a bit of land school before you finally go up in the plane. And we go up in the plane the first day, and it's raining, and the winds are too high, and we come back down, and, and we do that for three days. And on the third day, we go up, and they open the doors, and they throw out the wind socks, and the jump master says, good. You know, so your stomach turns a little bit, and you realize, this is it. And then I look down the plane and back up, and this is random seating when you get in. And I think, I'm the first person on the first plane. <laughs> and in seconds, I'm going to be told to stand in the door. And sure enough, <laughs> I wanted the plane to slow down, but it didn't. So we get over the, over the landing field, and he says, stand in the door. And, and 30 years later, this has not left my mind. I kept remembering to myself, there's nothing to hold on to. I mean, you think as you grow up in life, when you jump off a diving board or out of a tree or over a wall, there's always some like terra firma. There's a rope. There's even the bottom of a swimming pool you can see, the side of the pool. Kids learn to dive. You know, they're experimenting with how far do I have to swim to grab something. And that, to me, is hevel. That's the meaning of that Hebrew word. There is nothing to grasp. St. John of the Cross, the Spanish mystic, said that there is an experience in life in this of being dangled in the air. And he never skydove. But that's it. There's nothing to grab. It's totally contrary to human nature to be suspended with nothing to hold. No ground, no wall, nothing to lean against when life kind of assails us. And that's our human instinct, isn't it? I want to lean a little bit on something. Think about how we use language. I just need to um, get a normal week. I need to pull myself together. I need things to calm down for a little bit. And we imagine some way in our mind, oh, there is that place where we can just domesticate life. I just need it to be fixed like the man in the story of the gospel. I just want to sit back and sell to my soul, look at all this fine thing that has made me pleasurable. That's what the writer wants. I live my life, I work, I accumulate things, and I look out in the world and it feels like there's no ground beneath my feet and no wall to rest upon. It's not the world that's bad, it's my experience of it. I know it's good. He says that six times in the book. I know that the world is good. His final advice is remember your creator in the days of your youth, before your days get old. But something about his experience, and what? What is it about his experience that has led him to this exasperated state. In our reading, it's two chief things today in this section. There's several in the book that drive him. But the first is the sense that's right at the beginning. It's the programmatic question of the book. What is the advantage? What is the benefit to man? Um, I, may, I can't remember. The ESV maybe says, what gain is there? And he goes out and says, look, I see people labor and work, but to what gain? I look at the wise and the foolish, and they act wisely and foolishly, but then the same fate happens to them both. What benefit do they get? They don't get that sense of normalcy, that sense of stableness, the sense of a wall or a firm place to rest that they seem to desire, that they long for. No, there's no benefit from doing these things. He, he, he measures it very much right before the passage we read today. You may remember, if you know Ecclesiastes, there's this long test for him. So I tested the sea, and I built gardens and houses, and I built parks, 
and I had harems, and I had slaves, and I tested wine, and I tested every form of pleasure. And he lays out for us, look, I looked deeply at this world. And if there's a philosophical book in the Bible, this is it. I examined this stuff, and it doesn't last. It promises walls and firm ground and ropes to hang on to, but it does not deliver them. There's no benefit to them. The second thing that hangs over his head is death. And there's multiple dimensions to it. He says in chapter 9, look, we're no different than beasts that perish. Because all of us come to the end and we die. And you can't control death. You can't domesticate it. It just sits out there in front of all of us. And he ponders, if you read Ecclesiastes, he says, look at some of the things that happen. I'll store up goods, but who knows if after I die, the person who takes over my work will be a good man or a foolish one. You don't know. Um, philosophers of the 18th, 19th century used to think on this problem. The day that you die, you don't know if you were successful or not. You don't know if you were liked, and you don't know if you were good. Because you don't get to hear your eulogy. That's what he's getting at. There'll be no remembrance of the dead. After I poured all this into my life, and I built these kingdoms, and I did these things for society and the world, on the day of my death, will even, anyone even remember me? Or will I be forgotten the next day? What benefit is there? Death puts this cap to what we achieve, and it's not just that we die, but that we'll never know if we had a lasting impact. It strikes right at your identity. How do I even know that I'm a person, that I'm valuable, that I'm loved? And these two questions drive him. And we of all people ought to be asking questions about death and about happiness. With medicine, we can now extend life. And with the same medicine, we can end it in an instant. And the one thing we're not talking about is how to age and die well. Because we cannot eliminate it. Psalm 49. No one can ransom your life. We can medicate it, we can hide from it, we can deny it, but it will come. And Christians who all people know that from their scriptures ought to be the people who say we ought to talk about living and dying well, about the death that's given to us. In Ecclesiastes, his, his solution to this problem, to this enigma, the ephemeral kind of fleeting nature of life, is eat and drink and enjoy your toil. He's not a skeptic. He is not a pessimist about life. He knows that there is something good in life, and it's this. In a single day, in a moment, you can know that it's a gift. These are the words that we use to begin Lent this year. It's a gift. For this, too, is from the hand of God. The very idea that I was made, that I can breathe, that I can use my body to create something in a day, that is a gift, and I can enjoy it in the day. But if I take it to the next day, like the lesson with the manna in the wilderness, and try and store it up, it won't last. But there's a gift in the day. That's what he cautions us. That's what he counsels us to have. That problem hangs over the Old Testament without a solution. And it's into that that our New Testament book, that Colossians is written, that Luke and the Gospels are written. That God's answer to this problem is not to rescue us from the world. The last three weeks we've been reading in Colossians, and if you might remember from the first week in Colossians 1, 
For he is the firstborn of all creation. By him and through him and in him and with him. In him all things hold together. And he was pleased, listen to this, his incarnate Jesus who wore skin and dust. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in entirety. He did not abandon the world, he took it on himself. In order that, Paul says to the Colossians in the next phrase, he might reconcile all things in the heavens and the earth. He's not here to rescue us from the earth, he's here to rescue us with the earth for himself. That's so crucial to what it means to be human, to wear skin and dust, to know that Christ aligned himself to us that he might reconcile it all and fix it, to wipe away that ephemeral nature and restore to its pristine and peaceful life where there's ground beneath our feet and walls next to our arms. It's how we pray in the Lord's Prayer every week, not, Lord, rescue us from the earth But do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand to come and rescue us. That is what we set our hearts upon. Not upon the fleeting ephemeral nature of it. In our reading in Paul today, he's marveling at this thing he calls a mystery. Your life, he says right in chapter 1, is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul is trying to get behind the fact that we have a foot in two worlds as long as we live here. One of our feet is planted in Christ, secured for us in eternity, already in a new world. In our beginning of our reading today, you're being remade according to the image of your Creator. Now, that mystery is profound, he says. But your other foot's still here. Part of the redeeming work of creation And so the counsel of Colossians 3 is feed and nurture the things above the world, not that's not earthly, but that's hidden with God and Christ. So put these things on, love and compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. And put off the things of the other foot in the other world that stymied the world of Ecclesiastes. It's pleasures, it's lies about happiness in this place. I always wish the framers of our Constitution and of our Declaration would have said that we grant to Americans the pursuit of happiness. I know what they mean about a certain ambition for freedom, but I want the footnote to Ecclesiastes. Be careful because you'll die, and because the transiency of this world is unfulfilling. It won't last. It won't satisfy us. What then of happiness? Is there none in this life? No, here's where Paul says it is. Where is our hope that your life is hidden with Christ and God? Happiness is in knowing that you have been given riches already. And that hope, he says in Colossians, is welling up within us. It's to set our minds on these things, to delight in them. There was a line from our hymn this morning from Martin Luther, to delight in the world that's been given to us as gifts already ours in Christ. If there's something being offered to us today, it's to know what it means to seek the fullness of Christ, to feed on God in his nearness, to know that his promise is yours. I suspect for many of us, we don't know what it means to practice hope, to know what it means to live in that world where you draw upon the nearness of God, to love him, to delight in him, 
because we don't know how to do it. G.K. Chesterton is famous for having said Christianity was not tried and found lacking. It was found difficult and left untried. That's the insight for us. Paul never says that delighting in Christ and knowing that hope is easy work. That's why he's pleading with the Colossians, practice, put on that imagery of clothing daily. You have to practice generosity and kindness and love and compassion. You must practice setting your mind on the things above, where Christ is seated in the heavenlies, to be able to enjoy that hope and the joy that wells up within us to keep that ephemerality and the grasplessness of life from taking seat in us. It is the offer I leave us with today and tomorrow to go forward with from the psalmist who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Uh, in the last two weeks, we've been away, coming and going, and we saw all of our children, not all of them at once, and, um, but we were able to spend time with them. And when we're together, um, we play board games, which as many of you do. And it was a reminder to me, um, as, we, as we did this, our children span uh, 14 years, from youngest to oldest. And so uh, you're reminded when you do that that there is a whole um, grade of difficulty and complexity to games. Uh, little kids, we have lots of little ones, they can play Candyland. You have to know how to count and colors, I think is all you need to know. And then checkers and, um, and connect four, I mean, some of these games require a certain amount of skill, but move on to something like Settlers of Catan or chess or a Mexican train, these games we play, and now there's strategy and memory and anticipation. And the, and the, the register of the game kind of goes up and up. And if you... Um, have this kind of a board game metaphor in mind, it's a helpful way um, for entering into the book of Hebrews um, that we read today. Um, if um, Hebrews is like chess, um, then something like the book of Philemon is a Candyland. It's uh, probably the simplest book in scripture. Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says, let Onesimus your slave go, for you are brothers in the Lord. And I shared the gospel with you. That's the gist of There's nothing really poetic or long or beautiful or innate about the letter. Um, Hebrews is then on the other end of that scale. Hebrews is probably um, the most beautiful in ornate Greek. Um, the New Testament's not high Greek. It's, um, it's kind of things peasants and, and um, regular uh, street people would understand. But, but, but Hebrews is on the farther end of that. It is beautiful. And it is um, layered with metaphors and symbols. Um, that the writer just kind of packs together and, and builds into something. It's probably the most sophisticated literature in the New Testament. Maybe Revelation compares to that. But um, we come today to Revelation, or sorry, to Hebrews chapter 12. And that chapter is now pulling together the previous 11 chapters. All those symbols and themes that have been building. And so um, helpful for us, I think, today, um, next week we finish Hebrews 13, but as the writer draws it all to a conclusion, it's good for us to hear that together and see how the message has been building to get us to what we've read. Um, if there is um, a theme or um, a title or description for the book of Hebrews, I think it, a good one would be um, new and better. The book, um, as it's building on itself, 
is proclaiming that in Christ, God has sent and given us something new and better and new and better. And that's what's um, brought us to our passage today. So if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, it begins right there at the start. He has spoken through the prophets. But now, new and better, he's spoken through his Son. Through whom he made the world, who's the exact representation of his glory. No longer does a word of prophets go out, but the Lord has spoken by himself in his Son. That word that God speaks through the Son now, Hebrews is going to sustain that for all 13 chapters. And it's going to say, hear the word, pay close attention, chapter 2. Enter in, obey the word. This message, it's gone out into the world. And that message, that word, is new and better that's come to us. It's new and better than angels. For which of the angels, he says in chapter 1, did he say, you're my beloved son? It's new and better, chapters 3 and 4, than Moses. It's better than Moses' glory who went into the tabernacle. This is the radiance of the Son himself in the flesh. It's better than Moses' house. Moses uh, kept a tabernacle where he went and met with the Lord on behalf of the people. And the writer of Hebrews says, we are his house. That glory contained in a tent is now seen in one another's faces. There's a new and better house, a new and better presence, a new and better rest. Moses promised at the end of 40 years to enter into um, the promised land. But Jesus offers us eternal life. Psalm 95 quoted there. Heed that word, enter into rest. Here it is again. Do not be like the Israelites who after eating manna grumbled against the Lord, but hearken to his voice, Psalm 95, 6. As he speaks today, he offers a new and perfect and eternal life of rest in him. There is a new and better priesthood. This isn't Aaron's priesthood, where the priests offered sacrifices day after day to cover their sins and those of the people. But this is the sacrifice of a priest who once offered his own blood, that all would be covered, and then he sat down again at the right hand of God. It's a new and better priesthood because it's not from Aaron, but it's the priesthood of Melchizedek. Remember Genesis 14, Abraham comes and meets this figure out of nowhere named Melchizedek, king of righteousness from Salem. He's a king and he's a priest. This person with no origins is the nature, it's a higher, it's a new and better priesthood. That's the one that Christ comes with, not Aaron's. It's the one that comes from his father. And that priesthood is not like Moses, but he can sympathize with our weakness and yet be perfect because he suffered in all ways like we did. It's a new and better priesthood because it's not the blood of animals, but it's his own blood that covers the blood of sin and evil, the blood of Abel that cries out from the ground. And if it's a new and better priesthood and a new and better Moses and a new and better blood, then it's a new and better covenant. Israel broke that covenant with the Lord and came under his wrath. But this covenant, he doesn't write on stone, Hebrew says, but he's written the law in our hearts. So it comes with a new and better promise. And it's a new and better covenant. And it's a new and better rest. 
So enter and hear and heed that word. And that brings us to chapter 10, where the writer adds a kind of a new layer, a new metaphor, the race. You will need endurance. You'll run. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, not coming to church on Sunday. But meet and encourage and strengthen one another while the day draws near. Because you're in a race. And chapter 11 now extends that race. James and I preached on it in the last two weeks. You're not alone in the race. There's people who've gone before you. Abel and Moses and Abraham, Rahab, men and women, Gentiles, Jews. They've endured. They've been strong. They run ahead of you. They, they set up this crowd of witnesses that greet you as you run in at the end of your course. By this stage of writing, the, um, the Greek Olympics are 500 years old. And the Battle of Marathon is well known, this story of um, this victory at Marathon, and then Pheidippides, who um, probably was a real human, we don't actually think maybe he ran back from 24 and a half miles from um, Athens, from Marathon to Athens, but that story is probably known that this great triumphant um, victory, this run that somebody could discipline their body to bring the word of good news. And that's the image. The crowd is there cheering. They're ahead of you, Jacob and Moses and Abel. They've run the race. They're surrounding you. They wait for you to finish your course. And what is it that makes the race difficult? Suffering. Suffering and persecution. That's what ails these Hebrews. They're having to stand under their faith for a long time and be mocked and be imprisoned and to fight against sin. And the writer says, strive and run. Be strong. Lift up drooping hands. Strengthen weak knees and run to finish your course. And oh, by the way, not just these people, but we have a new runner. The author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus himself, who did not despise the shame of the cross but ran his course. And Hebrews brings us to that moment today in chapter 12. Run, enter, hear. Stay on this course, be faithful. The end of the chapter offers us this comparison. If the gift is greater, then the peril for rejecting it is more. If the gift is greater through Christ, if the entrance, if the covenant, if the promise, if the rest is greater, then it's all the more perilous for you to reject it. We're not a Baptist church, but every couple of months I get this opportunity to say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He offers to you everything. And we human beings are alike. We're chasing other paths. We're listening to another word. We're seeking happiness and rest. We're getting off the course and our knees become weak. And we trail off that path and the writer of Hebrews says to us, hear and listen and heed and meet together and enter the rest. Our readings from Luke and from Isaiah, if there's a connection with them, they take the better Sabbath, the better rest from chapter 4 and they kind of telescope into it for a moment. There's a new and better rest. Jesus has this dispute with the Pharisees in the synagogue. A woman who's come in in need of healing. And it may seem like a strange thing to us, but 
um, in these synagogues, it's appropriate for rabbis to argue and dispute about the interpretation of a law. That's what they did. Jesus isn't doing something um, highly unusual. Your interpretation of the Sabbath, in fact, his is from probably Ezekiel and Exodus. The, the, the Lord of the synagogue, he's right. Don't work on the Sabbath, Jesus. And Jesus is listening to these voices. It's a, it's a broad law. It's the most mentioned law in the Old Testament. And Jesus is hearing Deuteronomy and Isaiah, and he says, no, no, on the Lord's day, let compassion rule. That wasn't what it was for, to release us from the bonds of sin and death. It is an unfortunate thing, I think, that so much of Christianity since the Reformation has become so negative about the law. Jesus never releases us from the law. It uh, says, um, I have not come to abolish the law at all, but to fulfill it. But what Jesus does is doesn't put us under the law. He does something very unusual here that sticks with us from then on. He tells the church and gives us a pattern to reinterpret the law in the light of love. Jesus kept the Sabbath, but he ate grain with his disciples and he healed five times in the Gospels to reinterpret the law so that it, but to us it wouldn't be a burden but a light. I read from Deuteronomy 15 today. Listen to that. If you see a brother in need in the seventh year, release him. The law opens our eyes to need. It's not our burden, but it is our freedom that Jesus says to heal and to love. I leave us with this today, this new Sabbath, this new rest the Lord has given to us, and I put the word before us again. Hear the word. Be healed by the Lord of the Sabbath and enter into his rest. Amen.